you're not going to believe this story if you haven't heard it. Who am I? What am I doing here? And what the heck happened? Horrendous. And as you say, the potential for so much to go wrong. Someone comes to the door. It's child services. They said, listen, we got an anonymous tip. It's obviously false. You need to watch your back. The level of control just seems off the scale. What are they? I mean, it sounds like a high level prison. Not that it wasn't exhilarating, not that it isn't what I wanted to do, but it was absolutely terrifying as the primary emotion on that scale. So, And meanwhile, you must have been wondering, did you know he was safe? Because all the communication censored, so you had no idea whether he was safe or not. And that was the moment mm. when I realized that I can either sit here being afraid and scared and worried, or I can put my foot down and say, that's it. No more bullshit. Excuse my language. So I am absolutely delighted to welcome a new guest to my show, but one that quite a few of you might already know, Claire Headley. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Claire before we get started. Um, Claire was born and raised in Scientology and spent 30 years in the organisation. She served as a high-ranking executive at the church's international base before escaping shortly after her husband, Mark. You're not going to believe this story if you haven't heard it. In 2023, Claire testified as an expert witness on Scientology in the Danny Masterson trial. Claire currently serves as president of the Aftermath Foundation and runs two brilliant, um, she runs a brilliant website with her husband, Mark, um, blownforgood.com, and they run a fantastic YouTube channel, Blown For Good. Now, all Claire's links will be below, so please, please do subscribe to her YouTube channel. Um, So, Claire, before we get delving into the exciting things that you're going to share with our listeners today, how are you doing? How are things with you now? I am good. Thank you so much for having me on. And how are you doing? I'm doing really, really good. I must admit, like with the world, when the world's gone so mad as it has at the moment, um, you know, you have good days and bad days like everyone, but the sun's shining, my guinea pigs are out on the grass, I'm happy today. (laughs) But one of the main reasons I really, um, I was so delighted that my friend Bryce introduced us and I have listened to so many of your interviews on other channels because I'm so fascinated by what we can learn from your story, not only about being in cults and and getting out of those and the lessons learned because I think most of us that have gone through a bit of an awakening over the last few years since the start of the pandemic um, are really realizing that we're all brainwashed to a certain degree and we often don't know about it and so I think your stories like yours are so inspirational because not only do they teach us so many valuable lessons about how these things happen. I mean, your story is a bit different because you're obviously born into Scientology, but there's so many lessons that everyone can learn from this if we're prepared to open our eyes and open our hearts to it. But the most inspirational thing, which we're going to get onto in the second half of the interview, is how you've applied those lessons into really creating a completely new life for yourself. Some of my listeners, Claire, will know about Scientology, but some won't. And Tell us about, I mean, you were born into Scientology. Give us some feeling about what your childhood was like being born into Scientology. Yes. So I was born in England, uh, Manchester, um, and my mother had gotten into Scientology as a 17-year-old hippie. She'd gotten pregnant, you know, and she was rebelling against her Roman Catholic upbringing. um, And she just... um, She was in a vulnerable time in her life and got sucked in hard. And, um, you know, obviously, yes, like you said, it was never my choice. It's just kind of like uh, the the path that was preordained at birth, I guess you want (laughs) to, for no no better way of putting it. And um, so I found myself, you know, at the age of four, my mom had signed a, a billion year contract joined the C organization, which is Scientology's inner paramilitary elite organization that essentially manages all of Scientology internationally. Um, And so I was 
dumped off at the cadet organization to be made into a C organization member as well. That's, uh, you know, kind of the short version of a very long story. Um, and Scientology is obviously, well, not obviously, it's, um, it's an applied belief system. So it's very all encompassing. There's nothing really that I've come across in the real world that really parallels that life experience. It's not like, you know, people always say, oh, well, Scientology is a religion. Okay, break that down. First of all, I I don't believe that. I believe it's a an organized business. I mean, what what religion has a price list, for example, of services that you buy and pay for and courses and mm. but putting that aside, <clears throat> when you think of what is a religion, what do you think? Oh, well, maybe you go to church once a week, or maybe you read the Bible, or maybe you believe in X, or maybe you believe in Y. That's not what, what Scientology is about. Scientology is a complete controlling, leveraging, dominating organization that infiltrates and runs every aspect of your life, beginning and to beginning to end. So that was my experience uh, growing up from the age of four until I got out and at the age of 30. And, you know, on your point, though, in terms of life lessons, I, I just, you know, I obviously reached my breaking point. And, um, but in retrospect, I've just come to look at it from the perspective that personally, I think you can be your own worst enemy, or your own most sincere and fierce advocate. It's really just a matter of how you approach it. And the person you've got to be at peace with is yourself at the end of the day. Um, and so that's what my life has evolved into since leaving. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, it's for most people, it beggars belief. I mean, I'd heard a lot about Scientology and probably like most people, Claire, a lot of it because of Tom Cruise and Kirstie Alley and people like that. And of course, we never really know what's going on because you're only shown a certain picture. But when I started studying more and more about it, and, and I really got into it because I'm sort of one of my specialities is animal behavior and human behavior and why we make decisions that we do, particularly over the last few years where it's become apparent that perhaps I was making very different decisions to some of my friends and family. And it's really fascinating when you delve in. I mean, you mentioned there about your mum signed this thousand year contract. Can you tell us what is that? What is that all about? Because you were you were encouraged, forced. How was it to do the same when you were still very young? Yes, yes. And so it's a billion years. Billion. Different. <laughs> no, I mean, who's picking, picking yeah. hairs on zeros here? <laughs> um, yes, and... And so the C organization was developed by L. Ron Hubbard, um, who created this whole whatever you want to call it. I mean, you gotta I I don't I don't deny the mad genius of it all. He's managed to suck in a lot of very capable and intelligent people along yeah. the way. At the end of the day, you just have to go way and judge by actions and so forth. Um but yes, yeah, so the C organization is um the like I said, the uh, paramilitary elite organization. It's communal birthing. Um, like the staff members all are on a schedule. They all wear uniform. Uh, they all have positions in the organization that they're required to work on. Uh, there's no free time. You just do the schedule from you know first thing in the morning till late at night. Um, and there's really no room. Oh, there was no room in that life for children. So yeah. children of CIRG members were put into what was called the cadet organization and um, essentially were being trained to now become, to carry out the same commitment our parents were carrying out of a billion year contract. We weren't required to start right away, but we were um, required to sign the first billion year contract. I think I signed my first one when I was seven and again, when I was 12, then again, when I was 13. And then finally, when I was 16, it, it was a, a long involved story. But finally, when I was 16 is when I actually, you know, went and started and did the boot camp where they train you to, they're essentially mind wiping you and reprogramming you so that you will do anything they tell you to do. 
in it's, the sea organization in service of Scientology. Yeah. yeah. And and from my understanding, when you're working under those conditions, you've already touched on it, you get very little free time, you're literally exhausted, your pay is ridiculously low, isn't it? Tell us about some of those conditions. Yes. So um, and again, when I started my own contract, uh, which ironically as a child, I want I had decided in my head but never said it out loud that I would never want to do be a, a member of the C organization. The problem is, is that I didn't see any way out of that world. Yeah. I felt trapped. I felt like, you know, and then eventually I resigned myself to, well, I'll just follow the path of least resistance. This is what uh, love from my family, support from my family is kind of dependent, uh, dependent upon. And, um, you know, I'm being hounded by recruiters and this, that, and the other thing, but, but anyway, so yes, life in the C organization is essentially, um, seven days a week, very strict schedule. Like I said, uniform communal birthing, um, members of the C organization are paid $46 per week. Um, it's essentially a stipend to, uh, you know, because all costs are being covered for the most part, other than like, you know, toothpaste and shampoo and personal, personal items. Um, food is provided, lodging is provided, um, and you have no time to do anything. So you just work all the time. And it's a very, very controlled environment, very restrictive Um for example, any um, incoming mail is opened and read. Any letters you want to send your family are required to be left open so they can be screened. You know, if you want to call, if I would want to call my mom, for example, I would have to have a written approval to do that, uh, approved by at least three people. Um, and then somebody would be listening on the phone when I was talking to my mom, you know, no privacy um, just an extremely uh, tough schedule that that requires no breathing room to pause to reflect on who am I, what am I doing here, and what the heck happened. <laughs> no social interactions. When so, talk us about a little bit back to your childhood, uh, Claire. In terms of when you were in this cadet school, were you only allowed to mix with other Scientology children? Um. Yes, in that environment, though, though we went to um, public school, we were all put put in a bus and went to um, West Hothley Primary School, which was yeah. like 10 minutes away from the Stonelands was the name of the place that we lived um, in England. Um, <clears throat> so we did not fit in at all, stuck out like sore thumbs. And that was, that was, uh, you know, a big cause of contention and upset for me as a child because we would get called names like that'd be Sino, Sino, you know, obviously we weren't like the other kids that lived with their families and their nice little houses and got walked to school and had a dog and, you know, yeah. <laughs> all of those elements were not there. <laughs> so um, anyway, it was just, a, I think for, for any person that grew up in the cadet organization, it was really a struggle for, um, to just kind of try and survive and not, you know, like, uh, injuries were very, very common, um, poor hygiene, no parents, you know, you, you imagine an environment where you have 30 to 40 kids with one adult supervising, of course, all manner of things are going to go horribly wrong. Yeah. Absolutely. So how often did you actually spend time with your mom at this stage? So she would be, um, for the most part, she would be granted two to three hours once a week to do her laundry and clean her room. Um, and that's the time that I would spend with her for, for a little while in the beginning, there was this thing called family time where she might be allowed sometimes to come home for an hour at dinner time. Um, but after a couple of years that was banished and they weren't allowed to do that anymore. So, you know, then it was just the two to three hours a week. And then once or twice, um, she managed to actually take a few days off where we'd go visit my grandmother, um, who was never a Scientologist. And, but that was, you know, like I said, and in, in I, so I was in the cadet organization from age four until age 10. And I think two or three times 
um, my, my mother had time off. There were a few summers where she would actually put me on the train in London. Um, and I would go by myself to visit my grandma in Manchester. (laughs) Honestly, it's a miracle. I'm still alive. If if you stop and consider that for a moment, like seven years old, she, she would get on the train at Victoria station and just find somebody that looked normal and be like, could you keep an eye on my daughter (laughs) until for a three, four hour train ride with like 20 stops. <laughs> it is, it's, I mean, I'm glad you can laugh about it now, but it is quite horrific when you think about yeah. it. The impact on her not having contact with her own child and yourself is just absolutely horrendous. And as you say, the potential for so much to go wrong and all sorts of levels of neglect ranging up to abuse in that circumstance is absolutely horrendous I mean when did you move to America uh when I was 13 in 1988 right how did that come about so my mom had remarried when I was about eight um to another Scientologist who was an American he was at um St. Hill the headquarters there in England and um but he had a lot of debt um, from having paid for the upper levels of Scientology. He, so he had like 30,000 pounds in debt that mm-hmm. he had no no way to pay for. He was working as a staff member at the headquarters. Um, and anyway, it was kind of a you know series of fortunate or unfortunate events, depending on your perspective. But um, I had always, I loved all things American. You know, you've, I, I think I mentioned to you how hard I worked to lose my yeah. accent and people were like, what's wrong with the English accent? I'm like, nothing's wrong with it. I just loved the American accent. Yeah. That's all. <laughs> um, anyway, so um, anyway, series, series of events, but um, he had a job opportunity and he's from the US. So we, we moved, but moved here um, and we ended up in Los Angeles. Uh, my stepdad was working for and running um, a franchise of Scientology at in Beverly Hills. It's called a mission um, that brings new people into Scientology. And yeah, that's um, kind of what what happened, how we ended up over here. I I had always kind of envisioned that moving to the U.S. would be a clean break from Scientology. Yeah. Unfortunately, that didn't end up being the case. It just, in many ways, kind of isolated me further into the world of Scientology. Um, like I, my parents just they never put me in school in the U.S. Um, so I was thirteen, and Scientology just became more even more the focus of the only friends I had were Scientologists. I would go on courses at um, a few different organizations in the, in the LA area, including Celebrity Center. Um, You know, I just, (laughs) it became the central focus instead of, at least in England, I had other friends that were necessarily associated with Scientology for for a little bit anyway. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, one of the things that really struck me is just so horrific, and you touched on it at the start, where there's no church that, uh, you know, I know of that would actually charge people these extortionate amounts of money to do courses that it was compulsory for them to do really if they were staying in and to progress up in the organization so how did that structure actually work and how was it you know people chosen in terms of what level they could go to how they progressed through those lessons talk us through a bit about the coaching that goes with that Sure. Yes. In Scientology, um, there's what's referred to as the grade chart or the bridge to total freedom. And essentially, (laughs) (laughs) right. The bridge to total. We, Mark and I laugh about sometimes we were like, yeah, the, the, um, the end result of the bridge to total freedom is the bridge out of Scientology. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, you've got it, you've got it all figured out once you can get out of that mess. Um, but essentially, so a new person coming into Scientology will read Dianetics, the modern science of mental health, the, you know, it's called book one in Scientology. Um, or do the purification rundown, for example, you know, where drugs and toxins that are lodged in your fatty tissues are eliminated, none of which has been medically proven, by the way. Mm -hmm. Um, 
anyway, you start at you start out at the very bottom, and there's two sides to this bridge or grade chart. One, the, there's the side which involves counseling, and your in Scientology is called auditing, mm-hmm. uh, which is where they use the e meter, the lie detector, and then the other side is where you're trained to then. Um, as a counselor in Scientology, and you're supposed to move up both sides of this bridge until you get to the top. And then life is supposed to be wonderful and you're supposed to be a new person. And of course, this does not include all the training that a Sea Org member goes through or an executive goes through. That's a whole other set of courses and training. And I mean, uh, L. Ron Hubbard is no doubt a very prolific writer yeah lecturer you know there's like uh thousands and thousands of policies writings lectures you name it um anyway so that's that's kind of what what that is and um so the when you first get into Scientology something that's really pumped up is oh we're going to get you to the state of clear that's what it's called and then Beyond that, the upper levels are called operating Thetan levels or OT levels. That's the upper confidential materials where, you know, you can't, let's not talk about Xenu kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, the level of control just seems off the scale. I mean, and in terms of the work schedule that you had and therefore no ability to find yourself or have hobbies outside that or anything. So how on earth did you end up meeting your husband and getting married? that sounds like a miracle process to me yeah it was a um we are mark and i are a statistical anomaly let's just put it that way (laughs) but yeah so um so i when i so i started in this organization in los angeles and again long story short but um by september of 1991 i was promoted to work at the headquarters which is this 500 acre secure compound in gilman hot springs california in the middle of nowhere um super secure it's you know uh surrounded by razor edge uh razor wire fencing and um, and why, why the security? Sorry to interrupt, but what are they? I mean, it sounds like a high level prison. Yeah, it definitely is. In fact, oh. you know, Supermax has nothing on this compound. <laughs> oh. um, you know, they there's so much paranoia baked into Scientology that um, so, you know, if you go through the history of it, uh, um, when Hubbard was still alive, he was often on the run from authorities. He was yeah. convinced that. The government were out to get him and they were attacking him. And then, you know, Operation Snow White, the FBI raid of Scientology in the 70s, um, you know, and of course, yes, when you when you pull off the largest infiltration of U.S. government in its history, you have every right to be completely paranoid about authority and government and all that. Um, So those are kind of the some of the elements of the backstory that drive the level of security that that existed at this compound which made yeah. it close to impossible to escape yeah. um you know and then moving forward then you have david miscavige the leader of scientology abusing mm. staff at that property the last thing he wants is anyone to get out of there and tell the truth about what what happened there you know what crimes he committed what they witnessed so, you know, when you when you factor in the the landscape and the backdrop, you go, okay, I get it. He's uh they don't want people escaping from there. Definitely not. Like I wouldn't be here if their measures had succeeded, which they very nearly did, frankly. So, anyway, um but yeah, so back to the Me so I arrived there. Right. Yes, exactly. And so there were about a thousand staff there. I think I have to explain for just a moment that in the C organization, you are not allowed to engage in any kind of uh, personal interactions, physical interactions with somebody unless you're married, like other beyond a a kiss on the cheek or, you know, (laughs) nothing, anything beyond that is not allowed, which results in when you have, uh, you know, a thousand people you're driven to get married really quickly. Yeah. If you violate those rules, you end up on the rehabilitation project force, which is a slave camp reprogramming uh, thing that can take anywhere from six months to 10 years in Scientology. 
<laughs> so yeah, uh, you get married pretty quick. Get married so- quick and you just, yeah, because I mean, we'll go into that in another episode because that is a huge area, which I think if people are looking at the control mechanisms that have been put out in general society, which you hear about this. So you hit it off straight away, but you have very little time to spend to each other when you were married, did you? Because of your work schedules. Right. Yeah. Yeah, no, we were we were very often on different uh well, we were always on different meal schedules. Most of the time we were even on different sleep schedules. Um for a year I was in Clearwater, Florida. Mark was in California for another year. He was in Denmark. I was in California. <laughs> you know, so factor in those things. And we were just working all the time. Um, you know, it, you just, you just barely get any time together. And, and certainly that was a huge, um, kind of shock to the system when we did escape and, and successfully were able to reunite outside of that world. It was kind of like starting over, you know, lately. <laughs> The fact that you're still together is quite incredible. So let's get on to the escape then, because Mark went first. So can you talk us through how you both managed to get out of there? But most importantly, what was the straw that broke the camel's back for you? When and how did you decide this is enough, I'm out of here? I just wanted to say that today's episode is sponsored by ASEA redox signaling molecules. Now, it comes in two forms, the liquid and the gel, plus there's a huge other product range for us. Um, but why did I start taking ASEA and why is it now an integral part of something that my whole family, both four-legged and two-legged, take every single day? Plus also something that all the clients I work with, again, four-legged and two-legged, it's number one on my priority list. Well, part of what I do, what I'm passionate about, is understanding the challenges that are affecting each and every one of us in today's modern living. Um, The more you know, the more sometimes you wish you didn't know, but the pollution in the air, in the water, in the food, um, the control of our minds, the propaganda. But one of the things that we can do is take back responsibility for our own health. Now, every single cell of our body, whether we're an animal, whether we're one of the dogs in the backgrounds or one of my plants, contain these redox signaling molecules and cellular health and cellular communication is absolutely key whether you want to get your body back in balance whether you want to reverse the aging process, whether you want to address any particular challenges that you've got physically, emotionally, it all starts with healthy cells. If your liver cells are healthy, your liver's healthy. If your brain cells are healthy, your brain's healthy. But just like a mobile phone, most of us have got mobile phones that we we use on a routine basis now. But that mobile phone, regardless of whether you've got the latest model, is completely useless without a signal. So what does this technology do? Um, the, The gel is something that you can apply topically over particular areas of concern, whether you want your skin to look better, whether you've got cellulite, whether you've got an area that's causing you a challenge. The liquid is something you drink each and every day to top up what should be in your cells anyway. But when our bodies are stressed, diseased, challenged, or as we age, we make less of them. So personally, I wouldn't be without it. My sleep's better. My energy levels are better. My mood's better. My mobility's better. If you want to find out more, the details are below. But I'm so grateful that this came into my life. And I'm so grateful I can share it with others. I hope you love it as much as I do. Let me know. Yeah. So... Mark, uh, I recommend uh, his book, Blown for Good, Behind the Iron Curtain of Scientology. Um, The paperback version of that book actually has a copy of the police report. Um, So long story short, uh, obviously, well, not obviously, we we lived a miserable existence in a high security prison. Mm. Um, And not only that, if you contemplate even leaving Um, It's a high crime and a suppressive act that, you know, it was a very fragile um, situation between Mark and I in which, you know, if I said to him, let's get the heck out of here or vice versa, either one of us technically were supposed to rat each other out. Um, And then if you did say you wanted to leave, you'd be put on heavy manual labor, interrogation for what crimes you'd allegedly committed that were 
causing you to want to leave, quote unquote. Um, anyway, so, you know, my husband and I, our families are, or at least our immediate families are, are, are both in Scientology. So, um, of both, both my parents, or at least my, my mom and my stepdad and his mom and his stepdad were all Scientologists. So, you know, we had nowhere to go, no, nobody to ask for help. The only person that was not in Scientology was on my husband's side, his dad. Um, and his dad is, is, was played a huge role in how he, Mark was able to escape. But anyway, long story short, Mark was told he was going to be shipped to the rehabilitation project force the next day in Los Angeles, which he knew to mean he would never see me again. And at that point he's like, that's it. I'm, I'm out of here. I'm going to make a break for it. And he had a motorcycle and, um, he, he tried to, to, radio me and say, Oh, are you coming home? And I, I was like, I'm going to try, but I'm working all night, which was very common there. Um, anyway, I didn't end up going home and we talked about this on, um, Leah Remini Scientology in the aftermath, you know, and, and just honestly, I don't know that I wouldn't have ratted him out because the concept of the thought of breaking out of that world was absolutely terrifying. Not that it wasn't exhilarating, not that it isn't what I wanted to do, but it was absolutely terrifying as the primary emotion on that scale. So yeah. Um, anyway, I didn't make a home. He, uh, took off on his motorcycle the next morning. There was a security guard waiting, watching outside the house. So almost immediately, I mean, not almost immediately, immediately he had a security truck on his trail, um, with two security guards, I, I believe at that point, um, following him. Um, and they ran him off the road, which wrecked his motorcycle so that it would only now go like five miles an hour. Um, and as it happened, a passerby killed when they did that easily have been killed. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't remember if he was even wearing a helmet. Um, I think he was, but, but either way, yeah, (laughs) you know, and these are, again, this is in the middle of the desert in California. There's no population. There's like the closest payphone even, I think was at least three or four miles away. So somebody, a passerby saw, saw the security truck run him off the road and called 911. So the Riverside County Sheriff's office responded. And frankly, they are the only reason he succeeded in that attempt, which I've told them directly and thank them for profusely. Cause as much as, you know, there's, you can, you can say, oh, well, why isn't law enforcement doing something? Well, it's, first of all, it's not all law enforcement. Second of all, it's a, it is a tricky situation with the, you know, well, there you're an adult, you're free to go. Yeah. You know, you have, you have to understand the mechanics of a high control organization situation like that. And yeah. It's a real challenge for law enforcement to figure out what to do in a scenario like that. Yeah. Either way, in this case, <laughs> Riverside County Sheriff's Office responded. Um, and even though Mark did not, he, you know, he his mindset was like, I, I can't talk to the police. I can't say anything bad. You know, it's against the rules of Scientology. You can never um, ask for help from the enemy is what Hubbard says is the police or government or the FBI, or they're all the enemy. So, um, so even in this circumstance, Mark still was like, no, no, I'm okay. I just, I'm just trying to go visit my dad. He's not doing well. Um, so he got away and I was left behind. <laughs> so what were the implications on you then once they realized that, did they suspect that you know about it or um, yes, they, they absolutely suspected that I knew about it though, you know, in a, and again, in an environment like that, it's not like they could argue, oh, well, I was plotting with him. Yeah. I mean, I never saw him. I was at my desk the entire night. Obviously yeah. I didn't go with him. Um, but I was immediately restricted to the property. So it was like my, my levels of control were dramatically increased immediately I was, so I was not even allowed to go home to my room that was like half a mile off the property anymore. I had to sleep on the floor of my office and, 
Uh, goodness, Claire. And meanwhile, you must have been wondering, did you know he was safe? Because all the communications censored. So you had no idea whether he was safe or not. No idea. I had no idea. Uh, and I was um, devastated, confused. I was like, what the heck? What the heck just happened? My whole, yeah. you know, it was, it honestly was like having the rug pulled out from under you of, you know, anything that I thought that my life consisted of kind of came into yeah. stark stark focus and like you know that's when you unlock the the back door of the little voice in the back of your head like you know let's 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 get honest and let's figure out what the heck is going on here and what to do about it um but truly it was the uh hardest problem I've ever had to solve was getting out of there because I was I was such a wreck by that point yeah. emotionally physically mentally I'd I had reached the point where I'd lost so much weight that I couldn't eat anymore. Um, and was that the buildup of all this stress that was then made worse by that situation? Yeah, it was, it was, it was like, it was just had been by that point, years of hell of mm. a very abusive situation. Like for six months I was denied dining rights. So I would just, was just living off of um, protein bars so that was part of it. Um, you know, anyway, it's just like layer upon layer of insanity. <laughs> just complete abuse. And the fact that they can get away with this is just horrific. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So you're in, in you're then in a situation where you don't know whether he's all right. You're in even tighter control and at your lowest of the low physically and emotionally. So what happened next? Yeah. So I I had to basically come up with a plan of how to get out of there. Um, and I just came to realize that I wasn't going to be able to do it alone. I yeah. had to have somebody helping me on the outside because, um, you know, over the years I had seen many, many people try to escape in many different ways. And for all intents and purposes, I analyzed those and figured out which method I could try to use mm. with, that might have the highest success rate. And so I chose to um, go to an eye doctor appointment um, and to get contact lenses. And even then I was going to be escorted. I would still have to run away basically, but I would at least be off that property and in town. Yeah. Um, so my chances would be greater of succeeding, you know, not being isolated and just like you know security have just shoved people into vans before when they're walking down the highway to physically stop them from escaping so you know I knew that wouldn't work if I tried yeah. that anyway either way the main thing was I had to kind of figure out how to contact Mark yeah and um and so and also in the meantime I'd been told that David Miscavige the leader of Scientology had ordered that Mark be retrieved and brought back. Um, so I'm thinking in my mind, like, oh, that's great. If I like run away right now yeah. and meanwhile they've caught him and they're bringing him back, the end result is still going to be, you know, we'll still never see each other again, to, you know, but I I really didn't know. And did they let they... you know that or did you hear it by hearsay? Do you think that? No, was... they, they told Jenny Linson, who's one of the top executives yeah. in Scientology, she called me at four o'clock in the morning and said, David Miscavige ordered he be brought back. So that's was what I expected, you know, and then, and I, so I kind of had to bide my time for a little bit and feel it out. And, and I went so far as figuring, um, so we, so given that David Miscavige had ordered, he'd be brought back we, um, his Mark's sister and, and me were calling him trying to get him to come back yeah. And we weren't we weren't very successful in reaching him directly, but we called his dad and his dad was like, no, no, I have no idea where he is. Anyway, I kind of got these little clues in in this investigation and I figured out that Mark was with his dad in Kansas City. And again, factor in the the this terrifying situation where I'm like, if I leave, I'm losing my whole family, mm. but I've already lost my husband. It was, it was a real mess. And so I actually called up the, the head security person. I was like, okay, 
So Mark is in Kansas City. I figured this out. So who's going to get him? And they just kind of hemmed and hard, like, uh, 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 and I was like, okay, good. And I just hung up the phone. And in my mind, I'm like, yeah, they're, they're, he's, Mark had made it out of their control circle yeah. um, far enough that they were not serious about getting him back. Yeah. So that was all I needed to know. And then I was like, okay, good. So <laughs> meanwhile, I had to call my sister who was just a college student in LA. She was not in the C organization, but she was a Scientologist. And I had to concoct this whole story, which I honestly still feel guilty about lying to her, but I was like, Hey, yeah, I I'd be dead if I hadn't escaped yeah. from there. So, you know, <laughs> we do what we got to do. Yeah. Um, and I, I managed to get her to get a message to Mark um, cause he had one time given me this email. So he had a hotmail email account. So I used that to get him a message saying, I need your help. So he, and I, and the message from my sister said, can you, Claire's on a special project. Can you please call her at six o'clock tomorrow morning? <laughs> cause that's not weird at all. Right. Yeah. Um, anyway, he called the next morning and he was like, are you sure? I don't trust you. I'm like, that's okay. Don't trust me, but I cannot stay here. I need your help. I need your help to get out of here. Terrified that that call was being recorded or listened to. Yeah. Well, it was absolutely. Cause it was not my phone. Yeah. The phone belonged to the organization. And yeah. so they'd already told me that they were pulling the records on a regular basis. They would just call up the phone company and say, Oh, we lost this phone. Can you give us the most recent phone records? They did it all the time. Anyway. So finally, uh, you know, long story short, I figured out this plan to go to this eye doctor's appointment at Walmart in Hemet. And I had a security escort, this woman who was supposed to just drive me there, go in with me to the appointment and drive me back. And, and so I had also used the organization phone early that morning to call a cab company and say, Hey, I need to go from Walmart at 10, 30, uh, 10, 15 AM to the Riverside bus station. My name's Barbara Smith. <laughs> I was laughing about this the other day. I'm like, wow, so creative. <laughs> um, uh. yeah. Anyway, as it happened, we pulled up, you know, 10, 15, right on the dot when my appointment was. So I was like, oh, just let me out up front. She didn't see a parking spot right away. Meanwhile, the cab is over at the other door. I'm like, Ugh. so she, she went for it. She let me out. I walked in, walked straight through, jumped in the cab before we, but before we were even out of the parking lot, she had radioed me because it was a phone radio. Right. She's like, where are you? I'm like, oh, I'm in the bathroom. I'll be right there. And then I turned, you know, Mark called me like, Two minutes later, he was like, are you in the cab? I'm like, yes, I'm in the cab. He was like, okay. Anyway, it, it was complicated in that um, I got to the bus station. Everything was going fine. I called Mark from a payphone. I was went to Barstow, California. I was supposed to call Mark in Barstow from a payphone, and I panicked, and I couldn't. The payphone only took calling cards. I didn't have a calling card. I thought it would be stupid to ask somebody yeah. for a calling card. I thought it would be like, make me seem like Starman, you know? Yeah. And so I turned the phone back on and I called Mark. And of course he was like, what are you doing? You're supposed to turn it off. They're going to track you. I'm like, okay, it's going to be okay. But so this was the, by this time it was like one 30 in the afternoon. So, you know, I'm like two, two and a half hours into my escape. Yeah. I I shut off the phone. He gave me the ticket number. I got on the bus. Um by the time we made it to Vegas, um so it was like 4 5 hours later, there were at least 4 people waiting there to oh. take me back. How horrendous. So what did you do? How did you get out? <laughs> yeah, so uh, so we arrived in Vegas. I didn't see them right away. I waited into, oh, so we had a, a layover and a change of bus. So I knew I'd have to get off the bus, but I wasn't expecting that, that there was, I didn't know there was somebody there. So I waited until everybody got off the bus. It was dark because it was January. So it was like 6 PM. And I, so I get off the bus and I literally go to the station 
I walk like five feet, open the door and boom, there's a, one of the executives, Greg Wilhair standing there. He's like, you're coming with us. I'm like, no, I'm not. And anyway, I walked into the bus station. I was absolutely just like, I can't fail at this. I knew I could not fail at this. I would literally be locked up. Like we, none of us know where Shelly Miscavige is. That yeah. would have been my fate had I not, you know, succeeded. And I was like, for sure, they've, they caught me. So I just walked into the bus station and I sat down on my purse in the middle of the floor. And I just thought to myself, well, if they try and drag me out of here, I'll just scream. And, yeah. um, you know, and again, even in that moment, it never occurred to me to call 911. I was very well trained to never call law enforcement yeah. ever. Even if I felt like I was under threat of kidnapping, still the last thing I would do is call 911. Yeah. Anyway, um, they got Mark on the phone and told him that they'd caught me, that I wasn't coming. And they told me that he was coming, that Mark was coming back to LA at this point, I just knew I had to not listen at all. And I had to get on the next bus, no matter what I did. Um, but you know, they, for, so it was 20 minutes that I was sitting there on my, on my purse on the floor. So by that point, there were three people there. They're like, your family's going to be ruined. You know, this is, this is the worst thing you're, you're destroying your life. You're destroying Mark's life, you know, on and on and on all the, the crap that they say to people. And I got on the bus and obviously at that point, I'm like, well, no, no harm in turning my phone on now. They obviously know where I am. So I called Mark and I'm like, he's like, what happened? I'm like, I'm coming. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, it was a saga. Absolute saga. And then, so when you then, once you're out, they didn't stop persecuting both of you, did they? No, they did not. Um how did you cope with that? I mean, Claire, how did you, because you've been so indoctrinated into this thing, well, I, I just can't even imagine how you found the mental strength to cope with that level of, you know, bullying, bullying, coercion and threats. Yeah. Um, well, uh, to be, to be fair, um, I was terrified of speaking out, yes. honestly. Um, Mark, Mark started posting online anonymously and, you know, I just, while I didn't like it, I was like, you know, I'm not going to judge. We each have our path to walk here, whatever helps you therapeutically work yeah. through what we've lived through. That's okay. You know, it's maybe not for me, but you know, I, I would never be like, you can't do this. I'm like, that's not for mm -hmm. me to say. I'm not, I haven't walked in his shoes. I'm, you know, so, you know, I just kind of found peace with that of like, we, whatever path we choose, it, it's okay. It's going to yeah. be okay. Things will figure themselves out. Um, but there was absolutely the moment in time when, um, in 2008, when, um, you know, I can, I can remember the moment like crystal clear, you know, it was like, around 5 30 p.m i had we by this time we now had two children two and maybe six seven weeks old and the, someone comes to the door it's child services they said listen we we got a, a an anonymous tip and um, we've investigated it's obviously false you need to watch your back and that was the moment when I realized that I can either sit here being afraid and scared and worried, and then that what impact is that going to have on my kids? Or I can I can put my foot down and say, that's it. No more bullshit. Excuse my language. Yeah. But you know, you have to just make that choice to go, I don't agree with physical abuse and people's lives being destroyed and yeah but yet I have personal knowledge of it. So who am I to stand by and not speak the truth and expose what I know to be true and pr prevent other innocent people from having their lives destroyed while Scientology presents this glossy, false, like, oh, Tom Cruise and this, that, and the other yeah. thing. And, you know, glossy magazines and millions of dollars of real estate. And yet 
I know it's a trap and they hurt people and they destroy people's lives. And anyway, needless to say, you know, it hasn't, it hasn't been easy. It's terrifying there. You know, it's the David and Goliath situation, but yet what's the right thing to do? Did I want my kids to consider that an organization could get away with this? Absolutely not. Yeah, I think, you know, becoming a parent really does change everything, doesn't it? Your priorities. But so, so that that's just, there's so much information and I'll be putting loads of links to your channel below. I really encourage people to really go through and listen in more detail because when you understand just how horrendous this all is, but taking it now into where you're at outside in the real world and very much <laughs> inverted commas, how has that now changed your perspective about how you view situations that are going on, decisions that have been made perhaps at the political level, et cetera? What, how do you see life and what's going on at the moment? So um, it has been a complete journey for us to, for Mark and I, to just start our lives over. Yeah. Um, I, I steer clear of the, the politics. I'm, yeah. I'm much more of a, you know, life is what you make of it. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. Um, you know, so live your best life now and do, and, 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 you know, make decisions you can live with and are proud of and do work you can live with and be proud of. You know, I, I love the Gandhi quote, the be the good, you know, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's what I want my kids to know too. Like, you know, it's important to care for people and develop meaningful relationships and do things you can be proud of and work hard and, you know, and Mark and I have both built very successful businesses. We we both love the work that we do. Um, and so it's really just about, you know, I, I, again, I will always say it's never, ever too late to change the course of your life. Um, and to, to, you know, just the only person that will tell you, you can't is yourself. So if, you know, make your own choice and make your own path and, and build a life you can be proud of and that you, um, that empowers you to do bigger and better things. Um, you know, I, I just look at it and go, well, you know, I, everything that I've lived through to this day, I'm not going to regret one moment of it because it's made me who I am. I'm here despite what I lived through and I'm here to hopefully help people to know that, you know, there are high control groups, but you can get out of them. You can start over, you can, um, find peace and love and happiness and, you know, just live, live a good life. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's, there's so many messages in there that I want to pick up on because so many people will find a, a stage in their life where they feel trapped and that they feel that they haven't got a choice, whether it's to leave an abusive partner or a job you hate and everything. And you've gone from the ultimate control system where what you had to give up. I mean, I saw a quote today and it was like, we make choices about the regrets that we choose. And I thought it was so powerful because it's like, which regrets can you live with? So you chose to leave all your other immediate family behind to start this new life. That's a huge choice for anyone to make when you didn't have a support network on the outside. Yeah. So for people that you're working with now, Claire, I mean, when someone comes, because everyone, a lot of people do feel they're trapped. What advice would you say to someone that feels they're in that situation? You know, I just think it's important to be true to yourself, you know, and, and the irony is that Scientology will say, oh, what's true for you is what's true. And, but you have to just pause to, to make your own thoughts and, and have your own clarity and understanding of what's going on in your life. And right. that's, it is easier said than done. You know, I had, uh, you know, I, I often liken my escape to somebody saying, oh, just see that mountain right over there. Just go jump off. It's going to be okay. Mark's at the bottom. So it will all yeah. be okay. Somehow, some way, it doesn't matter that you only have $40 in your pocket or that you've never worked in the real world mm. or that you have no high school diploma or that, you know, you have no family. They're all going to cut you off completely. None of that matters. Just go jump off of the cliff and trust me, it's going to be okay. Mm. <laughs> 
you know, maybe, maybe there's some days that it's not okay, but you have to be willing to work through things and just know that, you know, you are who you are and, and find, find that inner strength and that inner power and just go, you know, what, what the, what I have control over is what I do now. And that's all I can say. I'm not going to put my, and even in that moment, I could have said, well, you know, I very easily could have just said, well, um, I'm in this group, in in this organization, I don't want to lose my family. So, you know, I'm going to divorce my husband. In fact, that's what they were already requiring me to do. I had to take my rings off the next day after Mark had escaped just so that they would get off my back about filing papers immediately, you know? (laughs) So again, you just go at, at, at a certain point, you have to be willing to put your foot down and go, yes, I can do hard things. And yes, I can live through this, but I have to make choices that are my own and not influenced by fear or anything else. But what's, you know, do what's right for me and what's true for me and believe in that. Yeah, it's it's such a powerful message because most people don't feel that they've got the strength to do it. But actually, when you're really pushed to the limit, we're quite often amazed at what we can achieve. So when you're looking around now in terms of day to day life and things, do you see sort of warning bells going off for when other people don't realize that they're being coerced into things? I mean, does it affect your sort of interactions that you're seeing with people that you meet on a daily basis? Absolutely. And and believe you me, I'm still working through my own, you know, it's peeling the layers of the onion or whatever, You, you know, we each have a process. I I personally just like to read books and hear different perspectives and kind of take my my own, you know, pieces of that that I can relate to. But certainly there's many triggers and many things that are like, eh. you know, <laughs> I I always tell this one story about my teenage my middle son. He's, you know, kind of the the the, you know, he's just very artistic, challenging, whatever. We have three boys, you know, we're going we're going through parenting challenges for sure but yeah. at one point he he was like well I want to go to this youth group at our at a local Christian church and I was like oh boy okay uh, and again nothing against Christians it's not about that uh and I'm not even saying youth groups are a bad thing it's just understand where I come from yeah this is like oh so <laughs> I was like well um okay then we'll we're gonna go to a service and just check it out okay and um, so we're driving to this to this church, and and I looked at him. I'm like, I just want you to understand, this is way outside my comfort zone. So I'm really trying to do my best, but I just want you to understand that. And he looked at me. He's like, Don't worry, mom. I'm not going to sign any contracts. Yes. <laughs> it's just to me. It, it's just one of those funny things. I laugh about it every time because it epitomizes, you know, everything that. Like, but at least he understood, you know, because we've always explained things to our kids in an age appropriate level. Um, But one of the best pieces of advice I was given when they were real little was, you know, just always be honest with them about, you know, what you've lived through and where you come from and don't ever lie to them about it. That way you can know they'll never go down that path. And that was solid advice. Yeah, really brilliant for us because for any parent, it's that really fine line, isn't it, about where you tread, about how much you let them learn their own lessons in life and how much you're going to try and control that. And trust us, we will never really know where that line lies. Um, but for you guys, when you've been through that, what, what you've been through, it must be exponentially more difficult. Um yes. But I've always also heard you say on one of Andrew Gold's podcasts that you did about how one of your sons read Mark's book as yes. part of college. I mean, that must have been a real, really exciting time for all of you. And did that sort of clear up quite a few things for him? Yes, yes, absolutely. I know it was fascinating. It's not that the book was chosen for him. Yeah. The English teacher said, you know, he's he, he, he this was his junior year of high school. So the English teacher told the whole class to pick a survivor story. Um, and he chose Mark's book, Blown for Good, Behind the Iron Curtain of Scientology. And we were like, wow, okay. 
And it was, um, it, it was just incredible. Cause you just go, well, you know, now he knows that story. He said his comment was it filled in a lot of pieces and answered a lot of questions that he didn't really under, he didn't have the, the whole picture. And he was like, it made so much sense for different things. And we were like, oh, well, yeah, if you have questions, we're, we're open door policy, like come to us anytime. He's like, yeah, no, it just, you know, anyway, it was an amazing experience to, to have that happen and just go, he, he gets it more now, more than he did anyway, you know? Absolutely fantastic. And I think, you know, writing that book, and I know you're writing a book as well. Yeah. It's so important because there's so many lessons from your experience. And that's just, I mean, we haven't even touched on half of them today, but how are you getting on with your book? I am getting there. I, I was just this morning. So I'm, I'm really, I'm, I always tell people we humans are expert procrastinators. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so I, I've, I'm like about a third of the way in and I started stalling out. So my new strategy is like, okay, I'm just going to try and at least do 30 minutes to an hour every day. That's yeah. my new goal. <laughs> I have it all in my head is the problem. And I yeah. have these like, and I, I do write things down from that all the time. I do a lot of, uh, I like every morning I go and do a hike up a mountain, which is, is my own form of meditation, peace, problem solving. It's I, I've learned that it's just so important to find something like that, that brings you peace and calm and, you know, real honest pause for reflection that's been one of the best things I've done for myself personally since I escaped. Yeah, it's my favorite thing as well. My time out walking in nature with the dogs is just my absolute favorite time. It's just so, so I can't believe how quickly the hour's gone. I could literally talk to you so much because this, I, I, it sounds a bit weird. It sounds a little bit gushy, but I think in a time where so many people are so struggling to find the strength of having the courage of their own conviction for trusting their intuition and for turning things around in their life. Because, you know, we can all go off course for loads of different reasons. But you touched on something earlier. I just wanted to finish with Claire. You said you're not going to look back and regret past decisions. So can you talk through about how important that is to accept, to come to that place of acceptance, but move forward with perhaps gratitude? Yes, absolutely. I think um, one time um, on one of the lives we were doing, somebody asked about, you know, well, don't you have anger? And and I just, the way I sum, it, sum that up is, you know, look, if you're, if you're starting the first day of the rest of your life, do you want to focus on what's ahead or do you want to re reflect on what's behind? you know, it's not what's behind that. That's okay. There's, you know, there's, there's power in that too, but what you, what you do next is what will determine, uh, and reflect on you. You know, I, another, another thing that epi epitomizes it for me is, you know, um, what happens to you is not what defines you. It's what you do next that defines you, you know? So again, um, you know, I, I choose to, take power from my experiences. And it's not that I don't have anger or grief or emotion about that, but I also know that I I'm, you know, what matters is keeping moving forward, head up, feet forward. Let's do this. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and when you're shining a light on an abusive organization that, you know, that that's hopefully that does some good in this world and makes it a better place so that people don't end up in the same position that I did. It makes so much difference because it's been said so many different times, but when atrocities happen, it's the masses that stay silent and turn a blind eye. And unfortunately, that is quite ingrained in a lot of people. They don't feel they've got the strength to do it. And we've seen it repeated so many times through history. And we've seen the devastating effects of that. So the bravery of those of you that are, you know, sharing your stories, not from a point of pity or sorry from a point of look I can tell you all this you know I'm very lucky in this life I have not been part of this but I've learned so much from listening to you and Mark about 
making sense of other areas of my life where I hadn't realized I was being sort of mind controlled and actually now really much more awareness if I have and also what I can do about it so please do know the work you're doing is so so important and we're really really grateful for you sharing it um thank you so much Claire for joining us today it's gone ridiculously quickly um <laughs> I will put the links below I'll put the links to the show that you did with Bryce and I know you're back on with her I really hope we can do more any Absolutely. That you want to leave people with again just you know um tomorrow's not guaranteed so make the best of today <laughs> Absolutely. you know there, there it's never never too late you can always make tomorrow a better day and even if you know even good days bad days you know the the focus is do what do what makes you happy do good and uh, make the world a better place and if we each do that we'll have a better place <laughs> <laughs> it's so true you know we've each got a little bit of the jigsaw puzzle and it's the decisions we make moving forward you know yes we all know there's lots of problems let's not focus on those let's make the world a better place thank yes. you so much Claire absolutely fantastic really grateful for you sharing with us it really is a very powerful message and thank you so much for watching thank you thank you so much for taking the time to listen and if you feel inspired, please do share with your friends and family. My goal is to inspire as many people as I can to live their best lives, to stay curious and to raise their consciousness and that of the collective. So to do this, I need to reach as many people as possible and this needs your help. If you feel drawn, would you be willing to share your favorite episode with five different people this helps us spread the word and also helps me encourage some exciting new guests to take part in this podcast. If you feel drawn to do that, I will be very, very grateful. All the links and discount codes where applicable for all the products that I support are on my two websites, katherineedwards.life and katherineedwardsacademy.com. All of the products are personally tried and tested by me my family and my clients. And finally, please do press the follow or subscribe button, depending which platform you're listening on. And above all, stay curious and stay free. Mm -hmm.